Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scripture or the power of God. All at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And now from Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, and that's on page 946 of the Pew Bibles. Galatians chapter 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. There is a sense in which Paul's letter to the Galatians is all about freedom. The freedom the Lord Jesus Christ has given both to the readers, the Gentile and Greek, Roman and Galatian believers, and to the writer, the once fanatical Jew, Paul. The very opening words of the letter speak of being freed. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, to set us free from the present evil age. And as we've learned the last many weeks, the freedom that Christ has set us free is not the shallow freedom to choose. And to show that Justin is not the only one who can spice up his sermon with um, contemporary cultural references, neither is this freedom the freedom that Janis Joplin sang about in Me and Bobby McGee. Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. 
well, contemporary, if you think 1970 is contemporary. I'm looking at you fellow baby boomers out there. This freedom is not the freedom to choose or nothing left to lose. It's the freedom of sonship, the freedom of being a true child of God. It's much, much more than mere freedom of choice. The freedom that Christ has freed us for is freedom of being. Not only has Christ given us freedom, he's brought unity in that freedom. Galatians 3.26 So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Yes, there is a sense in which Paul's letter to the Galatians is all about freedom. But it's a freedom that's under threat. That's the reason for this hasty, urgent letter. If you want to summarise the whole of Galatians, you could do a lot worse than taking chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. There's the freedom. Don't go back to slavery. The fear is that the Gentile readers, now freed from the slavery, from what Paul calls those who by nature are not gods, those weak and miserable forces, will put themselves into another slavery by adopting some of the distinctive practices of the Jews, of chief among them male circumcision. A slavery that Paul and his fellow believings, believing Jews have themselves been set free from. They'll be burning themselves again by the yoke of slavery. That's why Paul says, it's for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Well, that's, that's the great threat. But there are other threats as well. Today we discover yet another one to their freedom and unity. Verse 5.13 You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. You were called to be free, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. The extra, another threat to freedom, if you like, is that freedom becomes an opportunity for what Paul here calls the flesh. What is this flesh about which he's warning? And how is it a threat? Well, Paul has used the word flesh before in the letter uh, a number of times. And it usually has a meaning of the mere human or the weak human, often in contrast to God or God's spirit or God's power. You may remember back in chapter 4, uh, Paul contrasted the two sons of Abraham. He wrote of one in verse 23, his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. That is, a make-do arrangement between Sarah and her slave girl Hagar. But, he says, the son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. So it's flesh versus divine promise, the son that God gave a promise to, to Sarah. A little later, he describes a conflict between the two boys in these words, verse 29, at that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the spirit. So you actually now have a contrast of flesh on one hand, spirit on the other. 
And that contrast of flesh and spirit does has its roots in the Old Testament, as most things seem to do in the New Testament, as a matter of fact. It's clearest in Isaiah 31, where the prophet is bewailing those people who were relying upon military assistance from the Egyptians rather than the Holy One of Israel, the Lord. Isaiah 31, verse 3, the Egyptians are mere mortals, or literally, man, Adam, and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. See the contrast? Mere mortals versus God, flesh versus spirit. And next week, Justin will take us back to that contrast of flesh and spirit with a vengeance as we move on to the next part of, of, of Galatians. What we need to know for now is, is that Paul's use of the word flesh emphasizes the weakness and vulnerability of mere mortals. <clears throat> it's often contrasted with the power of God. Paul has a, what you may call a tragic view of humanity. So when Paul writes, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, what does he have in mind, anything particular in mind by saying that? Well, verse 15 gives us a clue. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. Now, that's pretty strong. I don't think it's literal. I don't think Galatians, uh, Galatians are not actually practicing cannibalism. But dividing and barring each other, but the language does indicate something pretty violent going on, or possibly go on. Violent words, perhaps even physical violence. It can happen in Christian communities. You may be surprised, I mean, you may have seen it in other places. Was it happening among the Galatians? Could it happen among the Galatians? We're just not told enough to know. Could the pressure from those agitators trying to force the Galatians to adopt the Jewish ways and perhaps under threat of persecution for not doing so have led to confusion and conflict among the, the churches, the Galatian churches. And we mustn't forget the cultural issues may be in play as well. Um, the, the Galatians lived in a Roman culture, a very Roman part of the, Romanized part of the world. And Roman culture was a culture of self-promotion and celebrity. It promoted the zeal to attain public status and promote one's own honour. And if that's how you're encultured, that's how you're programmed to behave, especially when the weakness and vulnerability you've got comes to the fore. Can I say in passing, we Sydney people have been encultured into the ways of our brash city, our materialist, independent brash city, and therefore that's how we'll behave. That'll be our, our vulnerabilities, though we not, may not even notice it. So it's easy to imagine the Galatians, while at one level rejoicing in their freedom, at the same time in danger of falling into conflict and competition, biting and devouring each other, an opportunity for the flesh. Now, next Sunday, we'll hear further on this flesh thing and how wide-ranging the acts of the flesh are. But I want to emphasize, you'll see a particular note, this is in chapter 5, verse 19, where Paul says, and I quote, the acts of the flesh are obvious, he says. Then there's a long list. 
sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. And then come these, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Now that's, there's a recipe for biting and devouring each other, ever I saw one. And he has drunkenness and orgies and the like. So, so when, when Paul says, do not let your freedom be a ground or place where, where the, for the flesh, it's those kind of things he's thinking about. Which leads to the question, what should they be doing instead? How should they try and overcome this? Back to Galatians 5.13. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You see it there in verse 13. Now that's the New International Version translation of the Greek and it catches Paul's meaning well. However, what if I was to tell you that the more literal rendering of Paul's words would be, as the NRSV has it, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather, through love, become slaves of each other. That's a more literal rendering of Paul's Greek words. Rather, through love, become slaves of each other. Although, now look, through love become slaves of each other doesn't affect mean the same thing as serve one another humbly in love. They're both, it's not a change in meaning. But by letting the underlying slavery language come to the surface helps us to see the wonderful paradox of Christian freedom. See, in Galatians 5.1, Paul says, do not let yourself be burdened by again by a yoke of slavery. But here in 5.13, he writes, through love become slaves of each other. There is a slavery which, that is inimical to Christian freedom, and there is a slavery that flows out of Christian freedom, the slavery of love. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather, through love, become slaves of each other. This reminds me of the 16th century German reformer Martin Luther's 1520 pamphlet called The Freedom of the Christian. And his main thesis is a wonderful paradox. I quote, a Christian man is the most free lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather through love become slaves of each other. And then having given that warning, through the, sorry, and through the whole letter, despite warning against taking up the yoke of the law of Moses, Paul now commends one command in it. Look at verse 14. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather through love become slaves of each other, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. The whole law fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. Now, of course, Paul was not the first to see the centrality of Leviticus 19, verse 18. As we heard, it was Jesus himself who said that this command was just 
One of the two, the other is the command in Deuteronomy 6 to love God, on which the law, the whole law and the prophets hang. The whole of Scripture hangs on two commands, which this is one. Even someone as different from Paul as James, the brother of the Lord, a very strict leader of the Jewish Jerusalem, Jewish believing church, spotlights the same command in his letter, James 2 verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you're doing right. So let's think about this. Love your neighbour as yourself. Let's think about it. To love your neighbour as yourself is to decenter your concerns from you to the other. It requires you to step outside of yourself and look back from another point of view. I must love them as myself. That tricks me up. It's the antidote to the usual egotism, which is the flesh. It opens my imagination and my heart to the other's perspective and need, whereas the flesh instead turns in on oneself. Now, it's not easy. It's, it's unnatural in one sense, against our natural fleshly inclination. But that's why we must not use our flesh to indulge our freedom, but humbly serve each other in love. That is, through love become, as it were, slaves of each other. Love your neighbour as yourself. Notice this is not simply about individual, the individual Galatian believer. Paul's concern is for the unity of the Christian community as a whole, of those who are all one in Christ Jesus. And this unity is not to be a theoretical or spiritual truth. Paul expects it to be embodied in the churches of Galatia. It's grace you can see. It's all part of what Paul has in mind when he writes of his goal for them that Christ is formed in you. That's what Paul's talking about. Concrete behaviour and attitudes. The gospel of grace expressed within living communities of Christian virtue. Therefore, something that we too need to take seriously. I should add that not only in Galatians, but throughout his writings, we find Paul is very concerned for this unity and holiness of the Christian community. It's a very high, in Paul's ministry, this is a very high priority in all his work, in all his work. And so what we do find in the same theme as we have here in Galatians 5, we find in other places as well. Let me just give you a couple of examples, four examples. You may not remember this, but back in 2020, as the COVID began, we studied Philippians. Seems like a decade ago, doesn't it? <laughs> Do you remember this from Philippians, from chapter 2, verse 3? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of others in your relationship with one another, have the mindset as in Christ Jesus. See, that's Christ formed in you. You find the same thing in Paul's letter to, to the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, 
clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Same concern in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 and following. As a prisoner of the Lord, he writes, I urged you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you were called. You think, what is a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called? Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And especially we find it in that letter to the divided and factious, proud Corinthian church. In an extended digression on love. I'm speaking, of course, of 1 Corinthians 13. Where Paul says that without love, any spiritual gift and achievement is worthless, worth nothing. That many of the gifts you've got now will end when the fullness comes, but not love. And then in the middle of those statements, gives a statement of the kind of things he means. And it's this, uh, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And here in Galatians itself, Amidst all the controversy swirling around and the sometimes difficult arguments we find we've got to wrestle with, Paul's key priority is shown in just one verse. What, what above all else is Paul aiming at for these people? It's in verse chapter 5, verse 6. We heard it last week. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love Christ formed in you so there you are the other threat to Christian freedom the flesh love your neighbours yourself through love become slaves of each other implications for us well, they are pretty clear, aren't they? I mean, they <laughs> are pretty clear. In fact, many years ago, this was way, way back, uh, at an international conference I was free to get to, there was this rather interesting eccentric pastor from South America, I think it was, who told us all he'd preached a sermon to his church of one sentence, love one another. And then he sat down. Don't get, don't get, don't get, don't get ideas, don't get ideas. It's not our custom. Justin won't let me do it. Then the next week, he got up and preached the same sermon, the same sentence, love one another. Then the third week, he did the same thing, the one-sentence one sermon. And eventually the congregation members, somewhat alarmed, asked him, what was he doing? You know what his answer was? I preach that sermon until you do it, then I'll move on to a new topic. Now, I don't think that is needed here. Rather, my experience of St. Philip's, and in fact with the Churchill family, 
is that I feel quite free to take the words of Paul to the Thessalonians and apply them to you. Now about your love for one another, I do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Yet we, so I, I will take the courage to urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Let me just add this as I close. Serving one another humbly in love, or in love being slaves of each other, does not mean that there cannot be differences of opinion between us, or there won't be, or there won't be conflict amongst, on issues. There will be conflicts of church polity, conflicts of political outlook, even at times, I hope only minor, conflicts of doctrine. I know, for example, there, there will be and have been differences of, of various aspects of our upcoming major building program. In fact, as that program proceeds, in the next decade, whatever it is, we'll need to be aware this, there'll be more opportunity to be grumpy with each other. That's all well and good, in my view. That's, that's, that's just the way of life. But let this be done, my dear brothers and sisters, in a way that preserves our freedom, preserves our freedom as children of God, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. Let's pray. We praise you, Father, for the freedom that in Christ we have been given. And we pray you'll help us protect that freedom against the flesh. Deepen our love for each other. For Jesus' sake. Amen.